You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. We're all spending a lot of time on our own islands at the moment. The global lockdown means we're all experiencing different lifestyles. Over the next few episodes, we'll be hearing from three past guests. In fact, the first three guests ever on Max's Island. We'll hear how they have new stories to tell, especially about the new journeys they have been on since we last spoke to each of them. And we'll learn how their goals and aspirations have been affected by the new environment we are all experiencing. I'm sure you'll enjoy this mini-series featuring Aidan, Gareth and Claire over the next few weeks. Welcome Aidan to Max's Island. First thing I need to ask you is, what's it like on your island at the moment? <laughs> well, my my literal island is my little inner city apartment that I moved into about six weeks ago because I wanted to be closer to all the uh, bars, clubs, theatres, town halls that I was frequenting with my time. So I'm in a, I love it. Um, it's a beautiful little spot, uh, but that's, that's the island, the physical island that I'm on at the moment. So that's interesting because you've obviously made a move for a particular reason. And that reason now is um, less relevant in these crazy times. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know that I would have done anything differently uh, had I known, but I think this, this is really a time when we're having to give up a lot of habits, routines, expectations, uh, even ones that were quite adaptive and like, like habits, routines, decisions that were adaptive and good for my mental, physical, financial health three months ago are now maladaptive and, and we're all having to adjust very quickly. One of the things that this change does is that it affects the way you think, it affects the way you perceive things, what's valuable and what's not valuable. So from a point of personal care, how are you going at the moment? Uh, I'm up and down and the the isolation for me is not the hardest part 
Um, I'm introverted by disposition. I've been working from home for the better part of close to two years or so now. So I'm used to having to structure my own time. The, the impacts on my mental health have not been great. And I think one thing that is positive that's come out of this crisis is people are getting much more comfortable at saying that they're not okay. So I'm really up and down. I have days where I'm quite almost manic, like I'm excited for all the possibilities and the things that could emerge. And for all of us who are in the social change space, you know, the, the extent and scale of change that we've seen and the scale of what is possible is just unprecedented. It's beyond, it's absolutely beyond what I thought was possible. And for me, that almost set up an expectation that I should be excited. So then I've been surprised by my own grief at what I have lost, which showed me that I was more connected to the old way of doing things, as critical as I was of the old way of doing things. More accustomed to that and more comfortable in that than I recognised. So having said that, is there something in the last couple of weeks that you've started to do that you've never done before? that is a new routine or a new way of thinking or even a, a, a new, something new that you're exploring from a learning point of view? The single biggest one for me is just being much more deliberate and particular in reaching out to people and being really willing to have uh, high-level conversations about what's going on in the world, but also to couch it in the context of what's going on for that person in an emotional and embodied sense right now. I was always a fan of, I mean, I, I enjoy these big conversations. That's very much why I enjoy coming on this podcast. But they, they lacked this emotional tonality. They lacked this sense of being embodied and being in that moment. Like six months ago, these high-level conversations, you know, about things like universal basic incomes or post-capitalism or, or whatever, they, they were very intellectual, very detached. I mean, at best, they were things that I might have gotten to bring into some of my work every so often. Whereas now we're all living in it. And because we're living in it, it has emotion, it has meaning, it has day-to-day -day relevance in our lives. And so the stakes are higher and the experience of it is really intensified. So, yeah, the new practice for me is just having those conversations and really being proactive in seeking them out. So that's one. The other big one is just greatly reducing the amount of content that I'm consuming. And, I mean, the great irony of this is I love being on this podcast, but I personally am staying away from listening to what other people are putting out. And that, that was a trend that was kind of part of my life before. I'm a big believer that we should all aim to be creators more so than consumers, but uh, that has definitely been intensified in the last, the last few weeks. So has that led you to creating more, you know, more content, more output? No, to be honest at this stage, and, and this is where, again, you know, being honest about mental health and that sort of thing, I recognize the need to cut out the consumption, but I have felt like I have had nothing to say and no sense to make of this moment, at least nothing that I've wanted to broadcast. So, so that, that's a little bit disingenuous. I have been like writing more. I've been journaling more. Um, 
and I've sort of been tinkering with my own little projects and sketching diagrams, but I, I haven't been putting content out into the world. And the things that I have put down on paper, like, uh, you know, it's, it's alphabet spaghetti. It's kind of just a mess. There's no real rhyme or reason to the things that I'm putting together at the moment. It's still very much in a emergent kind of making sense mode. Interested in your, your comment you said a little bit earlier where you, you know, you're, you're connecting with people deliberately and, and, and asking them how they're going and asking them about themselves in this, this environment, which is really interesting because if you are consuming media at the moment and all the media that you consumed, we're just being told things. There's, there's no sense of us as individuals actually having any empowerment to, to do anything other than obey rules, um, you know, we're told we can't leave the house, we were told we can't exercise, we can't associate with more than one person within the household. So there's a lot of things we're being told the, in terms of the way we need to lead, live our life. So there's not a lot of asking what we think and what we, you know, how we would like to deal with this situation. And I understand the reasons for that. So to connect one-on-one -on -one with people and asking them how they're going and how they're dealing with the scenario is, is, is probably quite unique for a lot of people at the moment. Yeah, I, I think there's a few really important kind of themes and points that you're making there. And I think the first one is because initially my first response, and this was sort of before we realised, the turning point for me was the realisation that we were moving into a new normal and that this would be a period measured in months and not weeks. And before that, like when it was not yet clear that this would be more than just a bump in the road, I was putting out a lot of content on LinkedIn and that kind of thing. I sort of saw it as, as an opportunity to help people make sense of the world and also to, you know, position myself as someone who understood things. I mean... Let, let's be honest about what social networking is often about. But then as it became clear that we were moving into a new normal, that this was something truly outside of my own ability to comprehend, as soon as it became clear that my understanding was not up to the task, I had to shift my mode from being like broadcasting my understanding to connecting with people to develop shared understanding and shared meaning making. And now I'm sort of at a point where people who are out there putting, putting all of these, I mean, there are so many think pieces out there of different people trying to make sense of this crisis. And the challenging thing is some of them are exceptional. There are a handful of pieces of content out there that do a wonderful job of making sense of the crisis. There's a Harvard Business Review article that connects it to grief that I found enormously helpful. But for every good piece of content, 99% of it is self-positioning bullshit by people who don't understand what's going on but are concerned that they are going to be invisible during this crisis. And, and there's no way to tell what's good and what's bad. I mean, some of the exceptional stuff, there was like an obscure Medium article that went viral a couple of weeks ago that was a really good explainer of the flatten the curve thing. Whereas, you know, you can have things in mainstream media that are just absolutely not worth your or anybody's time. So there's a real um, problem with the signal to noise ratio at the moment. And I think for me, one of the best ways to cope with it is to have a natural bias towards 
uh, one-on-one and small group conversation. The thing that I find really interesting and, and being still connected to a, a workplace that is moving, like continually doing things every day and you know, with a group of people that are working remotely, the reality is that things change dramatically day by day. So it's not only the physical things that are changing, but also people's attitudes, even my own attitude toward the situation and toward certain things. And so to be putting out a commentary that, you know, is designed to be definitive has a very short shelf life because things change so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you really want to be careful what you hang yourself on at the moment, you know, and, and again, to the extent that a lot of this is positional. And, and I mean, that's another avenue of intensification, right, is for those of us uh, like myself who are self-employed, there's sadly this urgent commercial need mixed in with the sense-making need. And so you're both trying to make sense of the world, but also you're trying to put out your sense-making in a way that feels commercially relevant to other people. And I think for me, there was a recognition that that was too dangerous a game to play at this point and both games yeah. couldn't be played. What, what I really like about uh, conversations as an approach to sense-making, and I think podcasts in particular as a form of content that may be more worthy of consumption than other forms of content is conversations kind of inherently begin from the premise that neither you nor I has the answer, but that we can engage in a process of shared sense-making, ongoing refinement and iteration. And although we won't come up with answers to what's going on, uh, we'll each sort of both move in the direction of wisdom uh, whereas things like publishing an article, it, it sort of, it assumes, as you were kind of saying, firstly, it's sort of, it kind of has to be timeless. Like articles mm. can't date quickly, whereas conversations, um, you know, they're, they're gone the moment that they're gone, right? Like it's over when it's over, whereas articles stay up forever. So they need this sense of timeless authority and, it now is not the time for timeless authority. The situation changes day to day far quicker than we can apprehend it. So we need forms of making sense together that play with and draw on that indeterminacy and multiple perspectives uh, rather than, you know, trying to challenge it. Have you got a sense and a feeling that as society, that new normal will be further from where we came from? Or will there be a bit of a bounce back? Hmm. Well, I mean, firstly, just to kind of quickly really drive home the last point, like what I love about the podcast as a medium is you can say to me, do you have a sense of and what are you feeling? And I can kind of say, well, look, here's what I think or I suspect. And I think you can't, you can't use those kind of uh, indeterminate <laughs> clauses. You can't use guesswork in articles, whereas here it's yeah. okay. So, yeah. you know, I, I do preface this by saying this is just a guess. So in terms of like how, I mean, I, when I hear you say that question and you kind of go back to the commercial thing, I think one of the main trends that we see now already and this is, I can't imagine there not being some form of this in the new normal, is that one thing that comes home immediately is that in a 
complex world with a lot of potentially emergent black swan events. I mean, and let's not forget, we, we just had one of the greatest natural kind of climate intensified disasters before this. So this is our second kind of major existential threat in as many months is the need for a strong responsive government that can intervene and go over the logic of the market. So the idea of like government as mere minders of the market and uh you know, you, you can almost, you can really see this in uh, Scott Morrison's kind of delayed response to the bushfires, like this this sense of guiltiness at actually having to get out and govern and make decisions, you know, rather than just sort of kind of keep the chair warm for a couple of years. So I would imagine that we would see a return to more government intervention. and I, And I don't mean that in a necessarily freedom stultifying kind of way but uh, a kind of return to the centrality of government in day-to-day life that's certainly one outcome I suspect beyond that I, I think it's really too difficult to say to be honest there's all sorts of possibilities and one one thing we know about capitalism and crisis and Naomi Klein wrote a really good article on disaster capitalism, um, not too long ago, post COVID-19 anyway, is that capitalism does a fantastic job of incorporating crises into its operating system. And I mean, I'm not going to define capitalism in too much detail here, but you could substitute it for the status quo or for people in positions of power. So it's possible the, the bounce back could be even more concentrated wealth and inequality than we had before. But I think the alternative is completely possible as well. I mean, I think if we get homeless people into hotels, it, it may be that it's just politically untenable to kick them out. And therefore, we have to invent or, or move towards housing as a right rather than a privilege, which is something that you know, the WA Alliance to End Homelessness and other advocacy groups have been pushing for for a while. So which of those will it be? Will we have, you know, more homeless people on the streets because landlords want their rent and everybody aid into their savings and we're in a depression? Or will we have will we have fewer homeless people because the state intervenes in markets, repurposes unused or unprofitable assets and um, recognises as not only a rights-based approach, but as a public health approach that we need to house the homeless. So, and that's, you know, homelessness is just one vector. You could apply that same thinking to to climate change, to urban design, to education. Uh, it, it, could, it could go either way. And I think a lot is going to depend on, well, too much is probably going to depend on the decisions of politicians and bureaucrats. But my broad hope that kind of the, the broader overarching theme is that more people are able to be involved in making these sorts of decisions in their communities. That seismic shift to actually providing an immediate solution around a place to live is really interesting. And hopefully there's been a, you know, a wall that's been knocked down that won't be rebuilt. And, and perhaps it's, it's just been able to clear some of the pragmatism away and actually just get to the end result a little quicker. And what seemed to be, you know, needing much more considered 
decision making and more people being involved and more layers and more red tape and more bureaucracy, all of a sudden the reality of it is staring us in the face and, and there's just a great opportunity to do it. And because things are so pressured, the, the decision's made for all the right reasons and we move on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of what you're talking about there is the recognition that so much of our institutional inertia and bureaucracy is a social fiction. Um, yes. And even those of us who are involved in the social change-making space invest in it because we talk about things like we need stakeholder consultation, we need relationship development, we need to focus on the adjacent possible. I mean, homeless people were people before COVID-19. You know, there was that tweet going around of um, Pan Pacific or one of the hotel chains like introducing 20 homeless people in and calling them our VIP guests. And the question is, why on earth did we need COVID-19 to recognise that homeless people were people? Why was it not a crisis before? I mean, the only answer to that is that we have, we have a complex system in which inequality is normalised as a byproduct, a necessary byproduct of a functioning market. And the thing is, the market now isn't functioning. And this is where the returning to government centrality matters, where we need, you know, if the market isn't serving to put vulnerable Australians in their homes, then we need to go over the market. You know, we need, we need alternatives. We can't be sort of too market-led on everything. I think that's a, um, a, a great example that you've used there. And um, hopefully there will be many other areas in our society and, and you know, the climate change argument uh, discussion will be interesting to see where that, that moves to. But there's a whole range of other things that the, the movement to finding real solutions and actually doing stuff was caught in the mire of discussion and, as you say, bureaucracy and red tape and, and layers. And now there's this simplistic approach to, well, we just got to fix that. It just quickly, it makes me think of um, Greta Thunberg and how the sort of the, because, you know, she, she's on the autism spectrum, which is, you know, a disorder that, I mean, has many complex systems and causes, but at least in the popular imagination, one of them is sort of a lack of awareness of and attention to social cues. And, in her case, that's actually part of her success story because she's kind of like, I don't care about you adults with your complex, we've got to do this and you don't understand how finance works and balance of soft powers and all these reasons why we can't act on climate. She's like, just no, just get it done. And I think in a sense, for people like you and I who are social change professionals and particularly for people like us who work in systems change, um, this is a bit of a challenge to us because it, it's realising that a lot of the time we spend, you know, during peaceful, quote, normal, end quote, times, <laughs> dithering and talking and developing all these new complex technologies and reading the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Uh, it, it's kind of an elaborate BS for what is, at its core, a crisis of values, you know, and, and I also, at the same time, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to oversimplify. I don't want to pretend that things aren't complex. We do live in a very complex society, but the sense of urgency to actually adapt and manage those systems so that they serve humanity rather than hinder has to come from a place of values. So we need to start from the point of like homeless people are people 
climate change is real. It needs urgent action. And yes, we do need to attend to the systems as they are, but with a sense of um, urgency led by our values, we can change those systems much more quickly and much more radically than we first thought. So my great hope is that COVID-19 is a dress rehearsal for that kind of change making and that we can apply this kind of change making across other systems over time so that we have a more just and humane society. On that note, I think you've, you've just hit uh, a, a great high about this is perhaps a dress rehearsal for better ways of, of dealing with our world going forward. Thanks very much for joining us on Max's Islands Day and please stay safe on your island. And I hope that once this period is over, that you'll find a place that will be profitable and profitable in the broader sense of the words, both mentally, physically, financially, and all of those other things, and that uh, you'll land in a place that uh, is perfect for you. Cool. Thanks for your time, Tony. Cheers, mate. Thanks for being on the island. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, oh work and no play And how, how it had turned out this way He told me his plan, a short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmun track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way Phone and nothing.